Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It is my pleasure to welcome Tim Holmes to the podcast. Welcome, Tim. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Well, Tim, many people may be familiar with you, whether it's presenting at conferences, you know, working with the SMRP board, doing a lot of different things in maintenance and reliability, but just in case they're not, you are the principal internal corporate consultant for reliability and maintenance engineering at DuPont Operations. Prior to that, you've been involved with DuPont in different roles around maintenance, reliability, uh, Six Sigma, those sorts of things. And you've been actively involved with the SMRP uh, since 2011. Although very brief, what can you tell us about yourself and can you introduce yourselves to our audience? Sure. Uh, Thanks, James. I have 33 years in maintenance and reliability uh, my whole career. I graduated from Carnegie Mellon in mechanical engineering and engineering and public policy. I spent my first 18 years at a plant uh, in a business uh, within DuPont. And then the last 15 years, I've been in that internal reliability and maintenance consulting group that you mentioned. So my whole career has been with DuPont, um, but I've had a lot of different opportunities. All right. Excellent. Now, it's interesting. You've been involved in maintenance and reliability in one way or another since the beginning of your career. How did you get pulled into maintenance and reliability? Typically, you know, sometimes you get pushed, sometimes you get pulled. No one really walks into maintenance and reliability coming right out of school. Yeah, it's funny that you should say that, but you're exactly right. Um, I think my uh, career path mentally coming out of college was that one day I'd want to be a plant manager. But uh, the engineering manager at a plant who hired me um, right out of school, uh, he was a chemist by background, incidentally, not a maintenance and reliability person. But he had a real breadth of knowledge around manufacturing, and he had a lot of foresight um, to be able to see what was coming in in the technology and maintenance and reliability. So he uh, he hired me. He didn't tell me right away that that this was in his intent, but seeing the predictive maintenance technologies coming and seeing some of the problem solving techniques that were developing in industry like uh, root cause analysis and FMEA and things like that. He, uh, he hired me and really kind of set my path in motion. He pushed me in the direction of, of these technologies and uh, wanted me to learn them and uh, implement them and spread them across my site. And, and so eventually, uh, not only did that, but I, I took them throughout my business and ultimately um, worked with others to kind of champion those technologies throughout DuPont. All right. Excellent. So, you weren't intentionally going into maintenance and reliability. You kind of got pushed there, but that ended up being a good thing for you. Obviously, you know, leading that and working as a corporate internal consultant for DuPont in that exact area. Now, within your journey, your maintenance and reliability career, you've had a wide range of roles, which I'm guessing allows you to see the different perspectives from, you know, an operations side, from a maintenance manager side, from an engineering side of things. Can you highlight some of the key roles that you were in or may have worked with that influenced your view on maintenance and reliability? Sure. Yes, I have had several roles. So for the first seven months of my career, I was working for that person who hired me and and I was the lone mechanical engineer supporting the, the maintenance organization in the plant in a group of chemical engineers who were supporting the production side of the plant. So I got to learn the site, I got to learn the business, DuPont's safety uh, expectations and and principles and things like that and other aspects around the company. I learned from those chemical engineers how to use the process historian and other kinds of operations tools. And those benefited me later on as a reliability engineer and as a Six Sigma black belt down the road. Um, When he felt like I was ready, 
Um, he had already been in discussions with some of the leaders of, of maintenance and operations out in the plant, and so they moved me out in the plant. And I became the maintenance engineer for one of the four process areas in the plant. It was a good-sized plant, about 1,000 people at the time, and four major operating units representing the major uh, parts of the, of the process. And I was in the front part of the process, the very beginning of the pigment process. So we handled raw materials, uh, both solids like uh, coke and ore and chemicals like chlorine. And I got experience in, in solids handling. I got experience in highly toxic materials. I officially supported the three mechanical crews and one electrical and instrument crew in that one quarter of the plant. But as the only mechanical engineer really plant at the time, all the other mechanical engineers were running capital projects. I really supported over a dozen maintenance crews and nearly 200 maintenance technicians by myself. So that was when I began learning about predictive maintenance, about laser alignment, about balancing, lubrication, pipe codes, welding, non-destructive testing, all those really valuable things that you don't really learn in, in school, in university, but you can learn from people who are really, really skilled in it, and I did. After about eight months, they asked me to move into a maintenance supervisor role. So for two months, I was working 12-hour shifts from six to six, uh, some night shifts, some morning shifts or day shifts, and I led four mechanics and one instrument electrical technician on those shifts. Um, and during the off shift, we maintained the entire plant. Uh, one of the critical roles of that particular job was that I was the on-scene emergency response coordinator in case we had a fume release or a, or a fire. So imagine yourself less than two years out of university on a big plant. And if there's a fire on the plant, you're in charge. <laughs> so a lot of uh, pressure when you thought about what could happen. Fortunately, I never really had to, to do any of that, but I was trained to. Um, the last seven months as a supervisor, I had a day crew. I supervised that incoming raw materials area that I had worked in as an engineer uh, before uh, because the supervisor was on special assignment for a large capital project. So they had me take over his crew. I returned to the maintenance engineer role, but instead of working just in that one area, I was officially the maintenance engineer for the whole site. And so I certified in many of the predictive maintenance and non-destructive testing technologies. I led those technologies uh, across the whole site, initially working with mechanics in each of the maintenance crews to do the predictive maintenance in their own areas. And that was really challenging because I was working with one vibration guy in one part of the plant one day, and then he would do other things for the rest of the week, and I'd go work with a, another guy in another area. So it was a very distributed, dispersed program, and honestly, it didn't work very well. So I told the plant leadership that I could do a better job if they would assign two mechanics to work with me full-time. And so they gave me three. <laughs> they gave me an instrument and electrical technician, too. And later on, we, we added a fourth um, while I was in the role. Well, it's not often you get more than you ask for. Yeah, I guess they felt like we were really uh, paying back on, on what we were doing, and we were. We had uh, implemented vibration analysis across the whole plant, laser alignment across the whole plant. We had pulled in all the field balancing. We were doing all of that. Uh, we were starting to pull oil samples. We uh, had begun to, to pull in and modernize the non-destructive testing program. So instead of just with a digital meter, taking a, a couple of thickness readings on the side of the tank and saying, okay, that looked good. We were actually using uh, scan technology and able to, to figure out when we were getting doubling or things like that in the readings. We had really started to do a lot of really good work on the plant and, and the leadership recognized it. After that, we, uh, expanded or I expanded the role. Um, while those guys were taking care of the predictive maintenance in NDT, I started adding root cause analysis to my toolbox and reliability centered maintenance to my toolbox and total productive maintenance, TPM, autonomous maintenance. Uh, we were teaching the, the operators to do some of the basic maintenance tasks. And, and it was during this time that I really began to tradition more from a a maintenance engineer to a reliability engineer. And ultimately I called myself the site reliability engineer. 
Before you move on, Tim, can you clarify the difference between maintenance and reliability engineering, just for those who might not be familiar with the difference? No, that's a really good question. And I find that it does vary a little bit from company to company. But, But basically, I would say maintenance engineers support the maintenance crews. They they do things like helping to set up maintenance plans to provide technical assistance for maintenance work, like scoping repairs or um, writing the repair scopes if you're going to send a piece of equipment off-site, um, those types of things. Where reliability engineers, instead of being in the day-to-day maintenance work, are really trying to work ahead of the problem. So instead of repairing issues that come up and maintaining the equipment, the reliability engineer really gets more into what's going on with the equipment and how does it fail? Why does it fail? And what kinds of things can we do to prevent it from failing as opposed to just fixing it once it does? All right. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That's a good question. And one that I get a lot, even still today in DuPont. Um, Uh, I began to pick up some other responsibilities. I became the site leader for mechanical integrity and for quality assurance. Those are two elements of process safety management. Uh, Your audience in in the U.S. will be familiar with OSHA 1910.119, and those are, are two elements within that standard. So, I was already leading a lot of the test and inspection programs and the inspection and quality control of incoming materials. So those were very natural expansions of my role. And in 1999, I was given the opportunity to become one of the first Six Sigma black belts in DuPont. I think it was in the third training class. And I completed my certification and I worked mostly reliability and maintenance related Six Sigma projects for a period of about two and a half years. During that time, they backfilled my role as the site reliability leader, and uh, I I worked solely in Six Sigma. After that two-and-a-half-year period, they brought me back to that role, and and they had expanded the role. They had added three engineers uh, to the group, and they had added two more technicians. So it was the leader and three other engineers and six technicians doing predictive preventive maintenance, reliability, managing the pressure vessel inspection program, uh, pretty much anything around uh, maintenance and reliability technology support we were doing it. And then I expanded that site role into uh, an unofficial sort of business reliability leader role. I didn't have the official title, but I was leading multi-site problem solving teams to address some of the common reliability issues we had across the entire plant in our in our group of businesses or our circuit, if you will. Um, in 2005, then, uh, I got the opportunity to um, join the corporate internal consulting group for maintenance and reliability engineering in DuPont. I had been mentored by a couple of people who were in that group and they had asked me a couple of times previously if I would be interested in joining that group and through a series of circumstances the timing worked out right in 2005 for me to to actually make that step and and leave the plant and uh, go into the corporate group. I immediately took over the responsibility of root cause analysis across the whole company because I had been doing that for many many years in, in my business. I uh, took on the leadership of development of a best practice for writing maintenance plans and SAP because I had been doing that for many years also at, at the site that I was at. Uh, I began to take on some of the, the ownership of, of our internal version of, of reliability-centered maintenance in DuPont and some other offerings. And I continue to own all of those offerings even to this day. Uh, I'm now one of two subject matter experts in the, in the company. Our group has downsized a little bit. So I own much of our internal body of knowledge in DuPont. I lead our global reliability network. I sit on our corporate uh, strategic and tactical teams for reliability and maintenance across the company, which have representatives from each of the businesses as well as subject matter experts for various aspects of reliability and maintenance. 
All right, excellent. So you've had a tremendous career in maintenance and reliability going from, you know, that engineer role to a supervisor role, lead, doing all these different aspects in your career. Um, and I know every time I've had the opportunity to move to a different position, I gain different insights, different perspectives, things I wouldn't have gotten if I didn't have that role. Now, what role or roles do you think you allowed you to grow and better understand maintenance and reliability? Was it working as a supervisor and how to engage people, get people to move through some of the processes? Was it, you know, that site leadership role? What ones really influenced your understanding of maintenance and reliability? So, so I will say, James, that I have always kind of practiced the, uh, the philosophy or the phrase of bloom where you're planted. So every role that I got the opportunity to, uh, to take, whether it was just me saying, hey, I could do that too, or I could take that on, or, you know, we could expand my role to include that, or I'd like to do this as well. I looked at every one of those opportunities as, as a chance to grow. And, and to better understand the field that I was in, the, uh, the craft that I had chosen, if you will. So not only reliability and maintenance, but, but more broadly, manufacturing in general and, and leadership skills. You know, let me lead that team. I'd like to bring some, some order and some structure to that part of what we do. And so every role really has taught me aspects about people and organizations about work processes and managing systems, about equipment and chemical processes and packaging systems and things like that, tools and, and technology, pretty much every aspect of, of maintenance and reliability and manufacturing in general. Uh, every single role I've had has given me an opportunity to learn and sort of grow my tool set, grow my my area of expertise and, and my knowledge and understanding. I'm always learning uh, things. I'm always trying to synthesize what I'm learning into what I already know and, and fit it all together and then teach other people as well. And I found that uh, in addition to internal work within DuPont, representing DuPont to other organizations, like you mentioned SMRP earlier or I was actually very involved in the University of Tennessee's Reliability and Maintenance Center for a while. It's a consortium of university, industry, and government. And uh, there's a lot of, of neat sharing that goes on there as well. So in those groups that I have been able to, to be DuPont's representative to, I've been able to gain external perspective that if I had just been in my one company, I might not have had, had I not been able to go out and, and network with people from other companies, uh, consultants and, and peers in other manufacturing companies and uh, vendors and things like that. So I, I, I've tried to use every experience I've had as an opportunity to realize a, a broader view of what's going on in the field and to bring that back to DuPont for DuPont to benefit from that. And I found that that's really been beneficial to me and valuable to me both professionally and personally to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Every role I've ever had, I learn a tremendous amount um, from everyone, those above me, those peers and those that I'm leading. I learn every, every role I get. Um, and it's funny, you learn different aspects from different people. And sometimes you don't realize some of those lessons until a year or two or three down the road, at least in my instance. Um, you know, I sit back and I think about some of the things I did when I was first starting. I thought it was great. And I remember people saying, well, did you try this or think of that? And it didn't make any sense at the time. Now, fast forward multiple years later, hey, if I would have did that, it would have done this and it would have made this work better. You know, those learnings come not only at the time, but even in the future, you're going to realize what some of those learnings were. I think that's so true. And, and one of the things that I've learned is, is always be open, you know, Somebody told me a long time ago, they said, God gave us one mouth and two ears. So we should be listening twice as much as we're speaking. So if you take that into account when you go into any room and you treat the people around you with respect that they, that they know a lot, it may not be in the same field you're in, but it could be in something complimentary. There's always the opportunity to learn from, from other people that are there. And so 
that just enriches your experience and, and broadens you as a professional. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that's stuck with me is that, you know, being technical by nature, the PDM, the processes, that all made sense to me. But I found that I didn't really understand the people side of maintenance and reliability until I became a maintenance supervisor. Now, did that help you better understand the people side of things? Or is there a different role that really got you understanding the people side of what we do? Well, it's interesting because I did learn a lot as a first-line supervisor. Um, It really helped me to understand from the very beginning of my career that that people who were very different from me, who had different backgrounds that I had, uh, could really teach me a lot. I remember a, a senior mechanic telling me one time, he said, you know, some of the people out here that you're working with, They may not have gone to college, but it doesn't mean that they're not smart and that they don't know a lot that you can learn from. And I said, you're exactly right. And and I always believed that. It was was challenging to be just a a couple years out of college and to be supervising people who were old enough to be my father. But I found that if I treated them with respect and I acknowledged what they knew and I valued it, that they were very willing to share with me uh, what they knew and to help me to, to be able to grow. And I'd be a better supervisor for them if I understood what they did. I grew up in the mid-Atlantic. Uh, I came down to Tennessee and worked at a, a plant in the South. So there were some uh, minor cultural issues that I had to, to learn to overcome as well. But uh, all of these things are about understanding and respecting people and, and learning from each other and being stronger as a team than any one of us is individually. I always, I always say that I say all of us are smarter than any of us. And so if we always take that perspective and we take the learnings and the insights from everybody around us, we'll come up with a better solution than what any of us would have done on our own. Um, many of these guys, again, they hadn't gone to college, but they were incredibly intelligent. They were very skillful. Um, and, and they knew a lot and they deserved my respect. And I found when I showed them respect, they, they gave that back. Um, so being a supervisor was one of the things that helped me to understand people. I'd say another thing that helped me to understand people was being a program leader. You begin to learn the importance of vision. I, I was the visionary for predictive maintenance in my plant and in my business. I had gone off and I had seen what it could do. I developed a vision for it. I was passionate about it. I knew it would work at my plant. And uh, people, I think, caught on to that, that energy and that enthusiasm. But I still had to have a good plan. And I had to be good at influencing people and, and communicating what the value was going to be for them. Uh, I had to be good about getting people aligned on what we were going to do and what was important and what was priority because you can't do everything at once. So... Program leadership helps you to understand people a lot. And uh, being a consultant helped me to understand people. Uh, You learn the importance of relationships, uh, the importance of of, uh, helping to to solve the other person's problem. When you can bring a, a tool set or a solution or something that will make something better for someone else and will solve that person's problem, they're much more likely to, you know, em- embrace what you're trying to do. So if everything is a, is a win-win, you're going to be far more successful. So all of those things are, are characteristics of, of people. They're, they're uh, things that you need to learn in order for all of us to, to work together to be more successful than, than we would if we weren't cooperating. UE Systems has been the premier source of ultrasound instruments, technology, and support for 45 years. From handheld inspection tools, state-of-the-art and complementary software, and now permanent sensors and 24-7 condition monitoring, UE Systems has everything you need to take your ultrasound program to the next level. UE Systems also offers five unique online courses to further your professional knowledge and ultrasound program. These courses range from lubrication best practices ultrasound inspection on mechanical, electrical, and steam systems. Learn more at uesystems.com slash training slash online courses. Yeah, absolutely. You know, being able to leverage that team, get that different perspective and input is what really allowed, you know, 
the, the journey, at least in my instance, um, to really move forward. It, I have one perception. Everyone else has different perceptions. When we combine all those together, then we can really move whatever that is forward, whether it's PDM, plan, scheduling, storeroom. It's really about creating that vision, getting that team engaged and moving forward. Now, that's a lot easier said than done. And we can spend an entire day talking about how do we develop teams, lead teams, create the vision, all that stuff. Yes. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have all day to do that. So one of the questions I have for you moving on from that is, and, I'm sh- and I get this question often from some of my listeners, is so throughout your career, right, you've had an opp- you're given the opportunity to try new roles. How did you decide if that was the right move for you? Because I've had people ask, you know, how do I make that transition from a technician to a planner or technician to a supervisor or moving from a supervisor up and so on and so forth. They really struggle with that decision process, if you will. So how have you handled that in the past? Well, I may give you a pretty unique answer compared to to some of the the other people that you might talk to. But for me, I'm a person of faith. So the first thing that I always lean on is my faith. I'm a follower of Jesus. So my first approach was always to pray and to ask God to lead me. I've always felt like he has the bigger perspective on things than I do. And so I always ask for guidance first. And and secondly, where I get a lot of that guidance is from the Bible. So one of the teachings in the Bible is that wisdom comes from a multitude of counselors. So whenever I would get the opportunity to to take a different role or to expand my role, I would talk to people that I trusted and I would explain to them what was going on and ask them what they thought. And generally, if you, if you have a multitude of, of good counselors, wise counselors, you'll get pretty good guidance. In, from a technical standpoint and, uh, you know, from the, the standpoint of the people listening, many of my opportunities kind of presented themselves as the next logical step in the, in the growth of my career, uh, in the, in the growth of my current role. So I mentioned earlier, you know, if, if you've already been leading the, the non-destructive testing program at your site, expanding your role into the mechanical integrity leader is just a logical expansion of that. If you've already been leading predictive maintenance and seeing uh, that, that your equipment fails, you can use those technologies to figure out why the equipment is failing and so that's a logical feeder into root cause failure analysis. Um, when you're looking at how things fail after the fact and you think, well, how can I be proactive? Then moving from root cause analysis looking backwards to FMEA looking forwards is the next logical progression in terms of the tool. So I always kind of looked at where was I? Um, what, what did the role entail? what's the next logical step to making the role more complete and more helpful to the plant and more making me more productive. And that's what I would look to expand out into. And I, to the leadership's credit, I was given a lot of flexibility um, because we were having results. I was given a lot of flexibility to be able to, to do what I thought was the next logical thing to make it better. The Six Sigma role came along as, a, as an outgrowth of all the different types of tools that I was already using as a reliability engineer. The return back to the reliability leader role with a larger group was a, was a logical progression. And then taking everything that I'd learned within the site and within the business and then making that knowledge and, and skills and ability set available to all of DuPont was was a next logical role too. So I think you could kind of say, like I said earlier, if you bloom where you're planted, if you constantly look at how you can grow yourself and grow your impact, the opportunities sort of present themselves. I was blessed with the fact that I worked for a large multinational corporation where I could get all of those opportunities without having to change companies. And the most difficult move for me, I think, was when I when I chose to leave the plant and the business that I'd been in for 18 years and, and move to a corporate role, that was tough. Um, 
but I was really glad that I did it in the end. It was one of the best moves that I ever made as far as expanding my opportunities and my impact and my ability to, to make DuPont more successful. All right. Excellent. You know, I did the same sort of thing. I moved from a plant role to a regional role and then to a global role. Every time I did that, I had the opportunity to learn more and more about not just the in and outs of maintenance reliability, but the people side of things, the strategy side of things, uh, you know, really allowed me to expand my growth. Sounds like it was very similar to you. Very. Now, what personal or professional development did you find made the biggest difference in growth and understanding maybe in maintenance reliability or how it relates overall to manufacturing? Well, I'm not sure I can narrow it down to one, but I'll try to narrow it down to three. How's that? That works. (laughs) Okay. I would say first, um, the transition from a focus on maintenance to a focus on reliability. I talked about how that kind of happened and, and I sort of made the transition myself. It wasn't something pushed on me, but, but again, when you take a look at the fact that your equipment is failing, being able to predict that it's failing is nice, but figuring out why it's failing and fixing that problem so that it doesn't fail as often, that's even better. So from a fixing equipment mentality to a preventing failures mentality, I think that was a, a huge difference in my career and a major sort of mental shift for me and for the company. I would say the other two key things are two things that I think make up the core of what reliability engineering really is. So one would be the combination of predictive maintenance and FMEA-based methods. So if you come to the conclusion that things don't really fail, let's say, by magic, right? The reason that equipment fails is scientific and it's deterministic. If I can measure everything about the equipment, I should be able to see what's going on with the equipment and intercept that failure mechanism before it causes the functionality of the asset to deteriorate. So those predictive maintenance, NDT, FMEA-based methods was a, was a really powerful tool set for me and learning those was a, was a huge part of my growth and, and understanding as a maintenance and reliability professional. And then I would say third would be root cause analysis. So it builds off of that, that second one. Um, if every failure is caused by a series of conditions and actions, and if I can follow the cause and effect chain, from the physical things that led to the human decisions or causes that ultimately were rooted in systemic type things, managing system things, then I can identify the physical changes and the human learnings and the management system changes that are necessary to prevent recurrence. And and I think that's really what the NTSB does. It's what any investigative organization does is they figure out what was the cause and effect chain of what happened in order to intercept that chain and break that chain and prevent it from happening again. And I think that's key. Um, Going back to the defect elimination theory, let's eliminate those defects. Like you said, break that causal chain. Um, In my experience, you're never going to, you're never going to PM your way to success. You always got to go back to, those reliability engineering principles and eliminate that failure from occurring, prevent it from occurring again, um, usually through attacking those systemic type issues. Um, I think that's really how we move forward. And I find a lot of organizations still aren't there. They're still not sure of how far do we take an RCA? Why can't we just PM out everything and so on and so forth? And I think that is a major focus or should be a major focus for people and organizations that are getting into maintenance and reliability. I totally agree. Now, maintenance and reliability is a very broad topic. What parts of maintenance and reliability do you find most interesting? So I love the technology. Uh, I used to tell people when I was getting started in my career uh, and I was leading that predictive maintenance NDT program, I used to tell people that DuPont paid me to play with toys and to learn things. And uh, so when I bought my 
our first infrared camera at the plant. I unpacked the thing. I put it together. I took it out in the field. And for a couple of days, I was just walking around looking at things. And I was trying to learn to think thermally as, as the Snell infrared people used to teach you. And so um, I love the technology, I, not just the, the hard technology, the hardware, but the methodologies like RCM, uh, like cause and in effect mapping and root cause analysis. Um, I love the technological aspect of it. I've always been fascinated with that. I like learning about equipment. I like learning about components of equipment and maintenance practices like alignment and welding and things like that. And, and I like to learn about how equipment is combined together in manufacturing systems and used to make products. Uh, I love the show, How's It Made? I watch that on TV a lot. And uh, seeing how different uh, equipment and different plants make different products it is really cool. And so working for a company like DuPont that makes so many different things has been really exciting to me in the course of my career. I can go to a plant one day that's, that's making uh, Tyvek for, for suits in COVID-19 and I can go to another plant uh, the next day that's making pectin that's used in, in making jams and jellies. So there's a wide variety of products and therefore a wide variety of equipment. I also really love to teach. I like to share what I've learned with others and, and I like to learn from them. Uh, I view teaching as an opportunity just as much for me to learn, again, two ears and one mouth as, as it is for me to pass on what I've learned. I like bringing people together and, and solving problems. I like facilitating a, a methodology or a process that causes everybody in the room to leave knowing more than what any of them new coming in. I want everybody to, to walk out having known more about their equipment and more about their process than they did before we started in this FMEA or RCFA or whatever. I want a, a broader and a deeper understanding of what's happened so that we can make things better. So I, I, I guess I would say that I got into the field because I love the technology and I continue in the field, not just because of the technology, but also because I really like the, the people side of it, the learning and the teaching side of it. All right. Excellent. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed the teaching part. Plus, like you mentioned, seeing how all these different things are made, how the equipment operates, that I think is probably the funnest part for me. Yep. Now, what part do you find the most challenging though? I think that over the years, I've learned that the role of the reliability engineer is very much an influence role. In fact, many of the leadership roles, if not all of them in the, in the maintenance and reliability space are, are influence roles. So the reliability engineer, I'll use him as an example. The reliability engineer works with management. The reliability engineer works with maintenance personnel, uh, operators, production personnel, stores, um, raw, uh, you know, materials uh, management people, works with project engineers, works with environmental health and safety people, works with sourcing, and, the, and there's probably other roles. I mean, I've done root cause investigations where there's been legal implications. So um, you work with the lawyers. So very much the, the reliability engineer is, a, is an influence role that works with a lot of different people. And so it's, it's challenging sometimes to be a part of, of those discussions and, you know, trying to influence the overall group in a direction that you think uh, is the direction that things should go and uh, to support whatever initiative or, or plan or, um, you know, overall program that you're, you're driving at the time. I think as I've matured, uh, in the field, I've realized the importance of looking for strategic partners. Um, those who uh, I can help to accomplish their objectives through the expertise and tool sets and work processes and programs that, that I have to offer and, and that I'm promoting. And so if we can work together to solve my problem and their problem at the same time, uh, we're much more likely to be successful and to sustain the improvement that we're making. All right. Excellent. Yeah. The, 
I've heard from some of my other guests, you know, the best friend you can make as a reliability engineer is someone in finance or accounting. Um, but I think you can replace that finance or accounting with all the other different roles out there because you're so involved in influencing and trying to drive forward a vision. You have to have all those different friends. Yep. Now, what excites you most about what's coming up in maintenance and reliability and the future of it? There's all kinds of things happening. What's really exciting you the most out of that? Uh, again, I think my answer would be the technology. Um, I see predictive maintenance in a, in a transition from walk around on-site programs to online monitoring with remote analysis. I see maintenance workers um, and maintenance processes where we've recorded uh, the history of the work that we've been doing on a paper checklist on a clipboard and, and we're moving into mobility technology and digitization, which is allowing us to eliminate paper, electronically connect to information that we need in real time. You have wearable devices that, uh, that maintenance people and production people are, are able to wear out in the plant now where they can uh, you know, bring artificial intelligence and, and uh, visualizations and things like that to, to the field and communication technology to the field that enables them to connect with a subject matter expert uh, remotely who may be back in the plant or maybe in the sister plant on the other side of the world. Um, so the, the technology that's coming to the shop floor worker, I think it's something that's very exciting and that I think is really going to continue to revolutionize the maintenance and reliability field. Um, I think there's also technology that's, that's transitioning the role of the reliability engineer. Early in my career, uh, we talked about how you would spend about 80% of your time collecting the data that you were going to analyze and reformatting it and preparing it for analysis and things like that. And today with some of the, the tools that we have and the data uh, hierarchies that we have and structures and taxonomies that we have, you can get that data collection and preparation down to maybe 20% of your time and you can spend 80% of your time in the data analysis and corrective action part of the role, which is where the excitement is, which is where the change happens, it's where the benefits are really realized. So there's a real transition, I think, to uh, eliminating non-value adding work and making people more productive through technology. And, and I'm really excited about the, the advances that are going to occur in the next five to 10 years in that field. And I would say that COVID-19 is just one other thing that's going to motivate that. Um, if you've got paper processes, that's an opportunity to transfer germs to someone else. If you can do it electronically, verbally, uh, no touch uh, type of a, of a way of, of transferring information, recording information, et cetera, then it's, it's going to be a healthier solution. And of course, the ability to monitor assets remotely without actually having to be at the site. We're all working from home these days. And so if I can pull up what's going on on a, a critical compressor at a plant in Germany from my house, um, that is a real opportunity to, to move forward. And we've had the ability to do some of that, but as we get more and more connected, uh, we'll have access to more and more data points uh, from more and more locations in the world. So the technology aspects of what's going on in reliability and maintenance at the moment are very exciting. Yeah, they absolutely are. My only caution with that is don't forget about the basics. Remember, like you said, the RCM, the RCA, FMEAs, failure modes, remember those things. Um, you're going to need them even with the advanced analytics. No question. No now, question. now, throughout your career, which is, which, you know, you had a wide range of opportunities, a lot of opportunities to see what works and what doesn't. What is the one thing you think makes the biggest difference in being successful with that maintenance and reliability journey, transitioning from maintenance to reliability and into the future? I would say being open to external ideas, not having a not invented here mindset. Uh, when I was getting started in predictive maintenance, I went outside of my business 
because I wanted to see what the best programs were in DuPont and they were in other businesses at the time. Um, so, and DuPont was a leader in the field. So I knew that if I went to some of the best sites in DuPont, I would see, be seeing some of the best sites in industry. Um, I learned root cause fair analysis and RCM from outside of DuPont. Um, we had training programs in DuPont that I didn't even know about at the time. Um, and, and I went to my training outside, but I'm glad that I did because it gave me the outside perspective. I've learned so much from the University of Tennessee's Reliability and Maintenance Center that I mentioned earlier and, and from SMRP. Uh, I heard somebody say this phrase a long time ago, and I think there's a lot of truth in it. I think evolution is possible from within, but I think revolution takes external perspective. So if you're really wanting to make a step change in how you perform, I think you have to have that outside perspective that, um, that, not, that um, not rejecting something because it came from somewhere else. Yeah, we have the opportunities to, as I say, stand on the shoulder of giants, learn from those who came before us. But often I find a lot of organizations don't do that and same with people. Um, I also find part of it is the cultural, cultural differences as well. Um, you know, where you're geographically located, the nation's cultures, that will play a role in willing to adopt some of those I find as well. Um, but be willing to stand on those shoulders, I think is vital. Agreed. Now, one last question before we wrap up, you know, if you had a magic wand, what is the one thing you would change in a typical maintenance and reliability program? I would say the obsession of, of many people to have to financially justify every single action, every single purchase, every single equipment upgrade, every single training class. It seemed to me that, that earlier in my career, and this was not only inside of DuPont, but outside of DuPont, that leaders had more faith that doing the right thing would ultimately lead the business to financial and other gains. Um, they were more willing to give people time to learn things, to creatively apply what they learned. I think that while expectations on the rate of return have increased, and justifiably so, um, the speed of change that we need to make today is, is much quicker than, than when I started. But I think we can still give people time to apply what they've learned. The paybacks in the reliability and maintenance field are typically, from what I've seen, in the 10 to 15 to 1 range. So things are going to pay for themselves. They are if you do them right. So just give the people time to learn. Give them time to do it right. And, uh, and the paybacks will come. All right. Excellent. Now, I definitely agree those paybacks will come. We, don't want to foc we have to focus on it, but we can't focus too much on it. It's one of those balances or dichotomies, if you will, that we got to manage. Now, what is the one action you want our listeners to take away from the conversation today around personal development and career growth? Never stop learning. Um, one of my college professors told me before, uh, you know, before I graduated, he said, spend an hour on personal development every day. Um, I haven't done, done that rigidly, but I have probably average that over the course of my career. I've found that the highest value activities are, are things that leverage benefits in multiple areas at once. So if you can find something uh, that you can work on today that's going to contribute to four of your six critical objectives for the year, that's a high leverage activity. Focus on those things. Um, so learn, develop, and, and focus on the high leverage activities. Some great words of wisdom there. Now, where can people find out more about you? How can they connect with you? How can they learn more about you and what DuPont is doing? So uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I typically uh, kind of segregate my professional and personal life. So LinkedIn is probably the best way to, to reach me. Uh, I do like to share things that I've learned professionally and, and, uh, and personally too uh, through those kinds of social media from time to time. 
I'm at the SMRP conference nearly every year. Uh, two years ago in 2018, I was the conference chair, uh, and I've been involved in the conference uh, preparation and planning for, for nearly the last decade. Uh, you'll occasionally find me at other conferences by, by uh, UTRMC and, and Mobius and, and uh, other groups as well. All right. Excellent. Now, last question for you, and I'm sure everyone, I get asked this question a lot. What are your go-to resources that you want to share with our listeners in not only maintenance and reliability, but career, life, all those great things? So my favorite book is the Bible. Uh, I don't think that there's any other book that can teach you more about yourself and, and about other people and human nature. And, and those things are all key to success in life. I've learned so much from studying the Proverbs, for example, that have benefited me in, in my business life. Uh, from a reliability and maintenance standpoint, I draw a lot upon the, the internal rich tradition of reliability and maintenance in DuPont, uh, but, but I do uh, learn externally as well. I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast about the show, How It's Made. I really like that and learning about more about manufacturing uh, of many different types of products. Uh, from my root cause analysis background, I enjoy shows on TV like Air Disasters and um, websites like the Chemical Safety Board's incident investigation videos. I think those are really good. I like the Think Reliability website, and, and they're pub publicly available cause maps on a lot of the major failures of our, of our time, like the Titanic, for example. That was before my time, but uh, the Space Shuttle and things like that. And of course, and no, uh, no um, surprise here, I love your library of podcasts. Uh, you've interviewed a lot of my heroes in the reliability and maintenance field and uh, people that I have uh, been around for years and years. And so just getting a chance to hear them reflect on their careers like I'm reflecting on mine today is, has been very beneficial and, and valuable to me. Excellent. Well, Tim, I'm going to put links to all those in the show notes so people can quickly find those. But first, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today about your career in maintenance and reliability, where you've learned, what the key influencers are, how you've managed your career within maintenance and reliability. There's a lot of questions around that. Um, and I think you provided some great insight to our listeners on what they can think about, what they can do to grow within maintenance and reliability. So thank you so much for taking the time today. James, thanks for the opportunity. It's been great. I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.